Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we continue our march through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and our text this morning will be verses 14 to 22. Verses 14 to 22. Follow along as I read. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Well, let's go to the Lord before we tackle our text this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inerrant. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that we are not left to interpret it on our own, but you have given us the Holy Spirit. And so we praise this morning that your Holy Spirit will be the teacher, that he will illuminate this text for us and that we might see its truths. And so we pray that you will protect your word this morning, that only what is true and right will be heard. We pray that there will be nothing in our lives that will keep us or hinder us from hearing your word. And so, Lord, we anticipate this morning that we will hear from you and that we will go out rejoicing in our God because we have heard from him through his word this morning. Bless this time together, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are going through 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here, and if we just take a trip back memory lane, we'll remember that back in chapter 8, we were talking about liberty, and we were talking about how the Corinthians had decided that they were mature. They were the strong ones. They were the ones who really uh, had a full understanding of God's truth, and in many ways, it seemed like they were saying to those who didn't agree with them that they needed to grow up and get ready because after all let's go with truth we're the strong ones and because of that they were encouraging and, and maybe maybe boldly going in and eating food that was sacrificed to idols because they properly recognized that food itself there was nothing wrong with the food 
But Paul had said, be careful that your freedoms don't end up hindering other people. Don't cause others to sin. And so Paul has really gone on to continue to talk about liberty. And he's, and he's talked about the, the need for us to be careful with our liberties that we don't cause others to fall. That we don't hinder the gospel. And so as he comes to chapter 10, he starts to get personal and he says, listen, be careful. Learn from Israel's mistakes who used their freedom to get themselves into sin and trouble. They thought that they, because they were God's people, because they've been called out with him, because they've been rescued from Egypt, that somehow that was enough. And but instead of using their freedom to serve God, they actually used it to spend their freedom on their flesh. And now Paul, as he comes to this section, says to us, Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. And the Corinthians, who were so liberated, who knew that idols were nothing, who understood that there was nothing intrinsically evil about food, started to get braver and braver to the point where now they were starting to go into the temples and start to eat some of the feasts and the food in the temple, in the pagan temples. And so they were using their freedom, as it were, to go and eat the good food at the temple. And Paul says, there's a danger there. There's a danger. There's a danger that as you go there and you start to participate and you start to eat some of the food, that you will be pulled back into idolatry. You will be pulled back into worshiping false gods. And ultimately, even you being there is a poor testimony. And Paul writes, flee, flee idolatry, get away from it. Don't use your Christian liberty to pursue it. It's one thing to eat food from a butcher shop where you're not sure where it's coming from or to eat a meal in somebody's house where you don't know where the food is coming from. But it's another thing to use your freedom to go right into a pagan ceremony and eat the food. And so Paul begins with this section. He simply says, flee, present, active. Keep flee and keep fleeing. Get out of there. Don't, don't tempt yourself to fall. Don't think that you can go into the pagan feast and somehow think that you are strong, right? Beware lest you what? Strong lest you fall. Take heed. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And so Paul says to this group of, of believers, these people who think they're strong, flee. He calls them, my beloved, there's an affection. I'm concerned for you. I care for you, but flee from idolatry. Get away from it. And then he says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. 
Now, he's already told them that they're immature back in chapter 3, verse 13. But Paul is really saying here, listen, I'm going to now give you an argument why you should flee idolatry. I'm going to give you a reason why you should get away from this. I'm going to give you actually three reasons why you should get away from that. And I'm going to presume that as you sit and you look at this, you're wise enough to discern that my argument is good and true. So I'm going, to, I'm going to assume that you're wise. I'm going to assume that you have the ability to be discerning. <clears throat> and so Paul says, you judge what I say. You judge. Now he's not telling them to, to judge it and, and deny it. He's assuming that as they look at it, that they will what? They will agree. There's an assumption here that they are going to agree. I want you to put on your thinking cap, look at the evidence, and then I want you to see what, that what I say is true. Now, immediately when we start looking at this, we start to say, Pastor, I really don't know how this has anything to do with me at all. I mean, we're not bowing down to idols. We don't go to false temples. What on earth could this passage have to do with us? If idolatry is going down to a temple and bowing down to an image, certainly not where we're at. So it would seem at really at the beginning that, you know what, urge park this one and we'll come back next week because after all, we don't do that. Well, maybe we need to look at what idolatry is a little bit so that we're going to start to see that some of these principles just might apply to us. So when we, we think of idolatry, we tend to think just bowing down to images. But I would suggest to you that it is much wider than that and much broader than that. Idolatry is really having a wrong idea of who God is. Idolatry is actually having a wrong idea of who God is. It is assuming that God is something other than he is. It's erroneous and an unworthy thought about God. Anything that is less than true about God or anything that is more than true about God, anything that is false about God is idolatry. Wow, that's a fairly high standard. But any thought that you have about God, when you think about God and it is untrue, you are actually slandering God. You are slandering his character. When you doubt him, when you, get, when you ask him for something and you think he can't be trusted, you're slandering him because you are not believing that who he is. You have wrong thoughts about God. So idolatry is to think anything less or more or other about God than is what is true. So all of a sudden now we're starting to see that maybe idolatry is just a little, a little bit more than going down into a temple and bowing to an idol. Idolatry is worshiping God in the wrong way. God has prescribed how he is to be worshipped, right? We have here what? Worship the Lord in the beauty of what? Holiness. There's actually a prescribed way that God has demanded to be worshipped. 
And when you worship in him in your way, in the way that you perceive to be right or true, but it's not according to what he's laid out for you, that's idolatry. We just had that example of Israel, right? And the, and the golden calf. What was Israel doing? They were worshiping Yahweh. They had the right name, right? They were worshiping Yahweh. But in, in the words of the song, they what, did it my way. They did it their way, right? They didn't worship him the way God had prescribed. And God judged them. Well, idolatry is also worshiping other things than God. Worshiping images, angels, devils, dead men, all of those things. Anything that you worship other than God is what? Idolatry. He demands to be worshiped by God alone. Any idol in the heart, anything that you set up as a God, you bow down to an idolatry, money, fame, prestige, whatever. Whatever you desire more than you desire God's glory and you desire it for yourself is ultimately what? Idolatry. Idolatry is covetousness and idolatry is lust. These are things where we desire material things, we covet, we worship them rather than we, and we worship the desire for them rather than God. And so idolatry is just a little bit wider than when we just bow down before God. So we want to keep that in mind. We just want to take those concepts now as we start to look at this passage and understand. And so Paul, as he calls them to flee idolatry, he says to them, flee it, get away from it. I think you're going to understand, and I'm going to give you three reasons why you need to flee idolatry. Three reasons why you need to flee idolatry. And I, I, I was trying to work out an acronym this morning because I love acronyms, right? So I'm actually going to use the outline here and, and I'm going to use the word idol when you think of how, why do we need to get a re, 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 flee from idolatry? Idol, all right? First of all, it is inconsistent with who we are. Secondly, it is demonic. And thirdly, and this is where I kind of had to work it, of offensive to our Lord, offensive to our Lord. So when you think of idol, you're going to have three reasons, right? It's going to be inconsistent, demonic, and offensive to our Lord. OL at the end, right? Idol. So if I haven't confused you, maybe that will be helpful. <laughs> All right. So Paul says, here are some reasons why you shouldn't, you should fl flee idolatry. And he's really going to now give us an example from the Lord's Supper. And, and he continues, remember, he says, don't go into the pagan feasts. Don't go into the idol worship. Don't, don't, don't sit down and have these meals. And he says, because first of all, it's inconsistent with you sitting down with the Lord's Supper. He says, it's inconsistent with who you are. He says, is not the cup of blessing, which is 
which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ. Now, the cup of blessing here could be the last cup of wine drunk at the end of a meal, a final testimony of thanksgiving for all that God has provided. But it is also the proper name for the cup name given to the third cup that was passed during the Passover feast. In the upper room on the night of, before his crucifixion, Jesus used the third cup as a symbol of his blood shed for sin. That cup then became the instrument to institute the Lord's Supper. So Jesus took that cup, right? He blessed the cup, and they drank of it. In any case, he set apart the cup as a, to a token of special thanksgiving before he passed it to his disciples in Matthew 26. And so whenever believers partake of communion, they partake of this blessed cup. In other words, they are celebrating that cup. That cup is representing Christ's redemption and his death for, for, for sin and for, for paying the price for those who believe. And so for the Christian, it is a supreme cup of blessing in the fact that it represents what? What Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so we bless that. We praise that. We take the cup and we praise God. We praise Jesus Christ for what he has accomplished on our behalf. He says we have a sharing in the blood of Christ. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the word sharing means to have in common or to participate with, to have a partnership. It's the same Greek word that was used of our being called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, according to 1 Corinthians 1.9, the fellowship of his suffering, Philippians 3.10, and participation in the support of saints, 2 Corinthians 8.4. So when we properly share in communion, we spiritually participate in fellowship with Jesus Christ and with other believers. It is, more, it is much more than a symbol. It is a profound celebration of common spiritual experience. So the idea is this. When you... What, what I want to guard against is to think that there is some special mystical thing that is taking place. But when we think of it this way, when you picture someone you love, it's not the same as the person. It only represents the person. So when you see that picture, that's not them. So when we celebrate the cup, right, we're, that's not Christ. We're celebrating some, a, a, a remembrance of him. But the feelings of love, care, desire to be with them and the remembering and remembering experience we had with them are totally real. In other words, we remember and there's, there's a real affection, there's a real caring, there's a real thought about them that takes place. And so we experience a real fellowship and kinship with that person. Whenever we see the picture, our minds are flooded with that reality. And so when we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we take the cup, we remember his death until he comes. We remember that he took his penalty upon himself. He redeemed us. He became sin for us. 
And so there is a what? There is a sense in which we are communing with our Lord. And each one of us, as we, as we praise him and we thank him, as we are in the spirit, are communing with what? With God, with Christ. And so there is, there is that, there is the idea that each one of us, as we take it and as we pray and as we give praise, we are what? Communing with God, communing with Christ. And since we're all doing it together, there's a sense in that we are all what? Sharing that same worship time together. And so we participate in the most intimate and real communion with him at that time. And then he says, so as we are in the spirit, right, we are, we are celebrating and communing with Christ. Is not the bread which we take, we break a sharing in the body of Christ. So the bread symbolizes Christ's body. As just as the cup celebrates or the, or the blood symbolizes his life. And, and so we, we would say this, it represents his life. And so when we look, we, we understand in the Old Testament that the human body was associated with the totality of life, with men's earthliness or humanness. And we remember when Adam was created, he was created out of dirt. And so his name means what? Earth, dirt, land. I don't know how many of you named your sons that. Hey, dirt. But, but <laughs> right? When we share in the body of Christ, we remember and celebrate what? His earthliness, his humanness, his incarnation, and also his death as a human sacrifice and salvation for humankind. So his body is really a picture of his humanity. It's a picture of a perfect human being, a perfect life lived in human flesh. And he did that for our salvation. And so when we do that, we what? We are, we are in the bread which we break, a sharing of the body of Christ. In other words, we are, we are participating or, or we are together celebrating what Christ has done for us. And so we, we, are, we are literally as a body together sharing in the body of Christ. In other words, we, are, we have a common celebration as we break bread as we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. When we eat the bread, we remember Christ emptying himself in order to live among us, Philippians 2.7, his suffering as we suffer, at his being tempted as we are tempted, in order that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest of Hebrews 2.17. So the, the Lord's Supper is a spiritual experience. The bread and wine are not transubstantiated, turned into the actual body and blood of Christ, as, as the Roman Catholics believe, or a constant substantial, having the actual body and blood existing alongside them, as many Lutherans believe. It is simply a remembrance and where we have an experience where we are spiritually communing with God. 
Christ cannot be sacrificed again because he was offered only once to bear the sins of many, according to Hebrews 9.28. We want to remember that when Christ gave the Lord's Supper the first time, he was what? Physically present. Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Did the disciples take a bite of his arm? No, he passed around bread, right? He passed around a cup. It wasn't his physical body. So listen to this. Listen to this quote. Where believers partake of, com of communion in faith, the Holy Spirit uses those symbols as sensitizers to kindle our spirits in awareness and appreciation of our Lord's great ministry and sacrifice for us. And then Paul says in verse 17, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. He says there's, there, there's what? One bread. And we who are many, we partake of that one bread. In other words, it demonstrates to us what? That we are united with one another. Because we are one with Christ, we are what? One with one another. And as we come into fellowship with Christ through communion, we are coming into fellowship with each other in a unique and deep way. In other words, we are, we are celebrating our oneness together. And this is why we talk about the necessity of communion and being together for communion. Why? Because it is celebrating not just our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, but our union with one another, our unity together, that we are people who have been redeemed. We are one loaf. We are one body and we are together. And so we could almost say that, th that the first part here is emphasizing our union with Christ and the second one is our union with one another because of Christ. And so believers are fellowshipping as we take one bread, fellowshipping with him through the Holy Spirit. They're also fellowshipping with, as one body, united in this solemn observance. So you, you could almost say this. There is identification, identification in participation. In other words, you are identifying yourself what? With Christ and you're identifying yourself with his body, the church. And then Paul uses an Israel again to illustrate his point. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices share in the altar? When the Israelites sacrificed to the Lord, some of the offering was burnt as a sacrifice proper, some of it was eaten by the priest, and some of it was eaten by those who offered it. Everyone was involved in the offering with God and with each other. There was this whole togetherness. Likewise, the sacrifice to an idol is, likewise, to sacrifice to an idol is to identify with it and with others who sacrifice to it. And so this is his point. If you are identifying yourself with Christ and his church, how can you be involved in a ceremony in a pagan temple that is dedicated to another God 
a false god and identifying with the, the, that god and with those people. Religious ceremonies, whether Christian or pagan, involve the participation of the worshipers with the object of their worship and with each other. And so he says, Paul is saying, listen, how can you, as believers, go to a pagan temple and be eating their feasts and identifying with that God and with those people when you are at the same time sitting at the Lord's table and identifying with him and identifying with his body. And he says, it's inconsistent. Get away from it. Stay away from it. And for us, we look at that and we say, well, I, I, I don't... I don't go to the temple. I don't worship a pagan god. How, does, how, how, how would this have anything to do with me? Well, every time that we have a thought about God, every time that we worship something else than him, we are being inconsistent with our testimony as when we come together for the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we're saying, I'm identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. I worship him and I'm identified with his body. And yet every time that we have a thought about God that's untrue or we have an idol in our heart or anything else, we are what? We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping something else. And it's inconsistent. How can we worship something else and be identified with something else when we are claiming to be identified with our Lord Jesus Christ? And anytime we give worship to anything else outside of God, we are guilty. We may as well be laying down before a idol and worshiping it because in our hearts, we're not identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're identifying with the, with the idol and those who follow those same idols as we do, whether they're wrong thoughts about God, whether they're desires that we have in our heart. And so Paul says, flee from that. Flee from that. That will lead to your destruction. So Paul says, listen, look at the Lord's Supper. Look at pagan feasts. You can't have both. It's inconsistent with who you are. And then Paul says even more, not only is it just is it inconsistent, but listen, it's demonic. It's actually demonic. Verse 19. What do you mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And then he gives us the answer in the next verse, No. No. And so Paul says, just, just in case you're thinking that somehow there is something, there's some spiritual power in the food or some spiritual power in the idol itself, the answer is no. 
It's not like the, these, the food is intrinsically evil or has a, has a force behind, in of itself. It's not like the idol is a real god. It's just a piece of wood or metal. They're nothing in themselves. But he says, more importantly than that, and, and as we look at the next part of the verse, he says, but I say the things with the Gentile sacrifice, which is speaking of unbelievers, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. In other words, they represent that which is demonic. De demons are the spiritual power behind idolatry. Those who sacrifice to idols sacrifice to demons. Now, how does that go together? How can that idol not be have a power, not be have power in itself, and yet there's a demon behind it? Well, when worshippers believe an idol represents an actual god, Satan sends one of his demons out to act the part of the imaginary god. In other words, this is what's behind the occult. People keep people have ideas of who God is or idols that they worship they believe it's truly God and then Satan comes in and is the spiritual force behind that belief system and so you have many pagan religions claims are, are, are maybe faked or exaggerated but many of them are true in other words Satan has power he has power to do signs and wonders he has powers to make things happen. Now we know that much of astro astrology, for instance, is simply exploitation of the gullible. If you say something wide enough and broad enough, you can fit shoehorn anything into it. But many predictions come true through the work of demonic forces. Now demons aren't all-knowing, they don't know everything, and they can't make the future happen they don't have unlimited power, but they have enough power to perform enough wonders and predictions come true to keep superstitious worshipers deceived and loyal. Now you'll notice very much that the Bible, the biblical standard for a true prophet is 100%, right? 100%. But in the demonic world, and even in the, in the occultic world, in the pagan world, if a guy has a hundred predictions and one comes true, he's got to be from God, right? He's a prophet. Well, not according to the biblical standard, right? Even a stop clock is right twice a day. If you make enough guesses, you're going to be right. But Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He rules the world with the aid of demons. And so to participate in the corrupt things of the world, especially in idolatrous acts of worship, is to participate with Satan and his demons. It is to become sharers with demons. Moses wrote about Israel as having sacrificed to demons who were not their God, Deuteronomy 32:17. The ones they worshiped were not divine, but they were real. 
The psalmist also speaks of Israel, tells of her following pagan practices to the extent of even sacrificing their sons and their daughters to demons. Psalm 106.37. So Paul says, you may think it's harmless. You might recognize that, guess what? The idol is nothing. That the food is nothing. But recognize that there are demons that are behind these gods, behind these false belief systems. And he says, I don't want you to become a sharer in demons. I don't want you to be one who's participating with them. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. He says they're mutually exclusive. You can't come and drink the Lord's cup and, and identify with him and then go to a pagan temple and what? Identify with them. You can't be consistent. You have to take one or the other. Paul is not giving advice here. He's stating a fact. You can't have both. Jesus made it clear that you, we cannot serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24. You will either what, love the one and hate the other, or you will hold to the one and decide, despise the other. When we fellowship with the Lord, we cannot also fellowship with demons. Now some in Corinth attempted it, but they were not truly in fellowship with the Lord. Their worship was hypocrisy, was apocryphal. And so Paul says, get out from there. Get away from there. You are participating in the worship of demons. Second Peter 4.2 says that what? Or is it First Peter 4.2, right? Where he talks about the doctrines of demons. Men are teaching what? The doctrines of demons. Every time that we take a, a philosophy that is against scripture, a philosophy that comes from mankind, we know ultimately it is what? The teachings of what? Demons. And so when we start to get encapsulated about wrong ideas of God and we start to take the philosophies of men instead of the truth of the word of God, we start to be idolatrous. We are not just taking ideas and false religions. We are ultimately taking ideas that have come from the pit of hell itself. And so Paul says, listen, flee idolatry because you are flirting with what? the demonic the demonic is behind every false religion every false philosophy everything that it goes against God and he says you can't commune with that and so we too need to be those who, who what are discerning who are looking to make sure that what we believe 
matches scripture and what we're being told goes against is according to the word of God and that we are not sucked in by false philosophies and false religions that come in the name of God but there's no truth and so Paul says flee from idolatry turn from it because everything that you start to believe that is not true about God, that you worship before God, ultimately is what? Demonic. He's a, he is a liar and what? The fathers of lies. And he will lead you astray. And then Paul closes this section and he says the third reason, not only is it inconsistent, not only is it demonic, but he says it's offensive to our Lord. He says, or do we, or do we provoke the Lord's jealousy? Do you provoke the Lord's jealousy? Are you trying to make God angry? Are you trying to make him jealous? He says, this is what's going to take place. When you turn to idolatry and you give the worship that is to, to be to a holy God you provoke him to jealousy God has a holy jealousy because he will have no competition he will be worshipped as God alone he will not share his glory with another that's why God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 32 21 they have stirred me to jealousy with that what is with that what is not a god they have provoked me with their idols god is stirred to jealousy it's interesting every you can just read about god's jealousy all through the old testament and god's jealousy is always referred in the pentateuch as something that is stirred up by idolatry If you want to stir God's jealousy, then you better be stronger than he is or you won't be able to handle him because he deals very strongly with idolatry. And that's, that's the question he asks here. Are you stronger than God? Do you think you're stronger than God? We are not stronger than, than he, are we? Rhetorical question, of course we're not. Of course we're not. And God says, I will what? I am jealous of my people. I will not allow them to, to go and worship something else. God punishes his, even his own if they will not what? Worship him. Look at the nation of Israel, right? They went to Babylon, why? because they worshiped idols and God judged them. God will punish his own. Notice this, Paul does not warn about the power of demons, but about the jealousy of the Lord. Right? Don't worry about the devil. You better worry about the Lord. This is, is the final warning about that God's jealousy cannot be challenged without impunity. Those who would put God to the test by insisting 
on their own right to what Paul insists is idolatry are in effect taking God on, challenging him by their actions, daring God to ask. Pretty strong statement. God will not allow idolatry to go unpunished and no one can escape. Even his own children will not escape if you're his chastisement if they persist on worshiping any sort of idol. Really, we only have to look to the next chapter, right? Chapter 11, they were taking the Lord's Supper, what? In an unworthy manner. And what is, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, some of you sleep. They were not worshiping God, what? The way that he demands to be worshiped in the way that he demands to be worshiped. It was idolatrous and God judged them. And Paul says, listen, you will provoke the Lord to jealousy and you don't want that. Because God will chastise you and he will punish you until you turn from your sin. And so Paul says, listen, this is why you need to turn from idolatry. This is why you need to turn your heart back to true worship of God. This is why you need to understand who he is and what he proclaims in his word and understand him for who he is. Because anything short of the proper understanding of God and worship of him alone is idolatry. And you don't have to go into a temple. You don't have to bow down to an image. All you have to do is put continually in your life, put things before God. If you worship fame, money, ease, if you have a proper, improper understanding of who he is, if you libel his character, he says, guess what? That's idolatry, and you are provoking him to jealousy. And Paul says, flee from that, Flee from that, because don't think that you are above the chastisement of God. And so Paul has warned the Corinthians who, who in, in, in many ways in, in, in their time, in their place, have fallen into this habit of going back to the temple, thinking that because they're strong, that they can be there. But they don't realize the danger they're in of falling into idolatry. And Paul says, flee from it. Don't fall into it. And the warning is still for us today. Wherever the idolatry is in your heart, you need to find it and you need to flee from it. You need to get rid of it. You need to deal with your wrong ideas about God and you must deal with the idols of your heart and the desires of your heart and the things that you pursue right? When we talk about idols, right? We talk about the things that we desire more than the glory of God for our own sake. And those things we pursue, we, this is how it works. We either pursue, when we sin in idolatry, we either sin to get something we want or we sin if we don't get it. That's how idolatry works in our hearts. And so we need to check our hearts and we need to see what are those things that I'm grasping at, that I'm trying to get, that I must have, that I will sin to get or sin if I don't get. And we need to lay those down because that is as idolatrous, that is as idolatrous as if you were 
went to the temple and you bowed down to that image and sat down and feasted with them. Because it's inconsistent with who you are. You, you come to the table and you say, my allegiance and worship is to the Lord Jesus Christ and communion with him and his body. And so we need to examine our hearts and to look and see where are the places where I have idolatry in my heart. And then we must what? Confess, ask God for forgiveness. We must ask him to grant us repentance and we must turn from them and take Paul's warning, flee, flee, so that we don't provoke God to jealousy. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would help us to examine our hearts to see those areas where we might be idolatrous in our own hearts. The places where we have desires that are not pleasing to you. Where we have wrong ideas about you where we are covetous, where we are lustful. And I pray that you would grant us the grace to repent of them, to flee from them, so that we might not be those who are inconsistent with our proclamation of you, that we would never fall under the influence of demonic ideas, and that we would never suffer your chastisement because you are jealous because we worship other things. So, Heavenly Father, grant us, I pray, the ability to flee idolatry and and to worship you with a whole heart. In your name, amen.